I'm Tanya Kerson, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. With finite resources, a growing population, and a changing climate, how do we feed the world? It's one of the most pressing moral questions of our time. Often, the search for answers is narrowly focused on the need to increase crop yields using new seed varieties and chemical applications, the hallmarks of what we call industrial agriculture. But experts around the world, including my guest today, Timothy Wise, increasingly question this approach, asking, if industrial agriculture is not doing a very good job of feeding the world today, how will it feed us tomorrow? Based on fieldwork on three continents, Tim's new book, Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food, weaves together analysis and storytelling to show that there's a better way forward. If we only listen to the farmers who already grow most of the world's food in far more sustainable, climate-resilient ways. Tim Wise is a senior researcher at the Small Planet Institute, where he directs the Land and Food Rights Program. He's also a senior research fellow at Tufts University's Global Development and Environment Institute, where he founded and directed its Globalization and Sustainable Development Program. He was previously an editor at Dollars and Cents Magazine and executive director at Grassroots International. Tim, welcome to Real Food Reads. Uh, It's a pleasure to talk to you. So your book provides such a great overview of the history of industrial agriculture and peasant farming all over the world with examples from multiple countries. But before we dive in, I'd love to establish a little bit of context. So I feel like up until very recently, we were hearing about the impacts of the 2008 food crisis when the number of hungry people in the world topped 1 billion for the first time. I know it's a complex question, but can you go back and set the scene for us of the 2008 crisis and what's changed, if anything, in the food debate in the past decade? Sure. I'm glad you start there. It's really what, in a way, prompted me to want to write this book. What happened in the in 2007 and 2008 was a set of speculative financial policies that resulted in the financial crisis. And biofuel policies, the expansion of biofuels, particularly corn ethanol in the United States, prompted a a demand surge for basic crops like corn. And um, within a very short period of time, 15% of the total global corn supply was diverted from food and feed markets into biofuel markets just in the United States. Wow. So that was a huge shock and fairly sudden shock to international markets. And of course, prices went up and the speculators came in and bet on those prices going up and made them go up further. So we saw a a huge set of price spikes, which went up and down over about three years. And mm-hmm. that caused hunger problems, particularly for food importing countries, because they've been told you can get your food cheap on international markets and suddenly it was expensive and for um, poor consumers, particularly urban consumers who were getting that imported food in the marketplace instead of growing it on their farms. And so this new consensus seemed to emerge suggesting that 
international policy and national governments should support policies that help developing countries grow more of their own food and recognize that the people who currently produce that food, small-scale farmers, should be the ones who get the investment and the support. Mm. Very encouraging. And five years beyond that, when I decided to write this book, it was very clear that that promise was not being met, that mm. policies were reverting to business as usual to support for large-scale agricultural projects, and that the promise of, uh, of new investment in sustainable smallholder agriculture was being squandered, and I wanted to find out why. There's another historical term I would like you to define, and that's green revolution. Sure. The term was coined um, to describe a set of policies um, and agricultural practices that involve primarily the provision of commercially bred high-yield seeds with the fertilizers and other inputs like pesticides that um, would make them have that high yield and the spread of that technology to places like India um, and parts of Latin America in the 1960s and 70s. The mythology, at least, and the sort of accepted history is that Green Revolution technologies, you know, prevented famine in India, saved millions of lives. It's relevant today in particular because the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in 2006 initiated the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. And the theory behind that was, well, Africa was bypassed in the first Green Revolution for a right. whole set of reasons. They didn't benefit and they need their own Green Revolution. And now that we have improved seed technologies, we can develop seeds that are better adapted to their conditions and give them the Green Revolution that they lost out on. That's the theory um, or the rationale for promoting those kinds of policies. Right. And as you say, you know, that's new push for a new green revolution in Africa really rests on the, the mythologies of the original green revolution, which I think of as, you know, we talk a lot about spin <laughs> at Real Food Media. And in some ways, the green revolution is is one of the best marketing campaigns in, in modern history. Yeah. And I, I cover that a lot in the book because part of my travels. Well, they took me to Southern Africa, where I was mainly covering Tanzania and Zambia, Mozambique, Malawi, poor smallholder-dominated agricultural countries. But it also took me to Iowa because I wanted to find out where did this crazy model come from right. of input-intensive agriculture and why are we exporting it to a place like Southern Africa? And that is where the mythology is being manufactured day after day, year after year with the World Food Prize and, and the whole We Feed the World narrative. You know, this reminds me also of the way you open your book in, in the introduction in Mozambique at a, a research conference in the capital, Maputo, on climate-smart agriculture, where you describe, you know, well-dressed people sipping bottled water in a, you know, nice air-conditioned environment. And that in contrast with the reality of small farmers who are typically not in attendance at these kinds of conferences, and especially women farmers who are in the fields developing their own climate adaptation strategies and, you know, using their own local resources and native seeds 
that have very little to do with what's happening in those conference halls. No, it's uh, that's exactly right. It was it was a striking uh, contrast. I, a week ago today, I was actually in Maputo presenting the book at a well, wonderful event in which um, some of the people who I interviewed for the book mm-hmm. from Zambia and Malawi and South Africa and Mozambique were all in attendance. So it was a, a wonderful opportunity, but I was actually describing that introduction to them because mm-hmm. a number of them had been there. A number of them were those farmers who were developing those technologies. They were actually excluded from that conference. There had mm-hmm. been an attempt to get them invited, and the organizers uh, declined to invite them. And they literally were 10 minutes up the road mm-hmm. in a separate farmer meeting organized to scream at the at the Mozambican government for its land grabbing policies. Mm. Um, so I went back and forth between the two and you didn't have to go far to find out what farmers really wanted. You mentioned you just got back from Mozambique last week and this is also in the wake of a pretty devastating cyclone. Can you talk at all about, you know, how farmers, um, these farmers that you spoke to are, are doing in the aftermath of that? And also what kinds of climate solutions people are talking about there? They were hit by two of the most powerful cyclones ever to hit the east coast of Africa within a month of each other in the port city of Beira, city of about a million people. Mm. They say more than 50 percent of the homes lost their roofs. In that province, 700 people died, and everybody considers that an underestimate. But farmers were particularly hard hit because the storm swept inland, caused massive flooding that created literally an inland sea 100 miles long. Wow. Hard to imagine. We see our Midwest flooding now, which, of course, is also related to climate change. But um, there we're talking about just a scale that that we can't imagine. And and it was almost harvest time, so those who had crops in the ground lost their crops for the entire year. Mm-hmm. Um, so the food security issues are extreme right now. There's a fair amount of food aid going in. I was up in Sofala, the, one of the provinces that was hardest hit. And the biggest problem the farmers have now is is seeds. So getting them seeds is critical. The next planting season, which in Mozambique comes in September... And not only are there not many seeds available for them, and they're panicked about that, the only seeds that there are are hybrid seeds. And these are farmers who have saved their own seeds in part so that they have seeds that are adapted to their local conditions and so they don't have to buy them every year, Mm -hmm. as you do with hybrid corn seeds. Here, you're going to have aid agencies going in and distributing free seeds that will be hybrid seeds that farmers will have to buy the following year. It kind of puts them on track to be dependent on seed markets uh, for the first time for many of them. So that's the struggle right now is to find locally adapted seeds or open pollinated varieties of seeds that farmers can save year to year. And again, it's just sort of the agribusiness domination of, of these markets. Can you talk a little bit more about why there aren't other seeds available aside from hybrid seed? I, th- I feel like someone listening might say, well, in this case, you know, hybrid seed is really saving the day. 
Well, right. No, and that's certainly why the crisis is a business opportunity for these companies. The subtitle of my book is Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food. Mm. Those battles take place on many different fronts. One front is the battle over seeds. Mm. And the battle for seeds is over whether farmers are going to have seed systems that they control, meaning that they can save, exchange, and sell seeds among themselves freely. Ideally, with the help of scientists to help them adapt and improve those seeds so they're more productive versus a future in which those seeds are declared unproductive by the government and are replaced by uh, the kinds of commercial seeds that need to be purchased every year. There is a market to produce seeds that have to be purchased every year precisely because they have to be purchased every year. So... Hybrid seeds are what uh, generates a seed market. You also contrast that with a strategy in which um, one might support farmers in growing a diversity of foods that um, might better support local consumption and local nutrition as opposed to growing a, a singular crop meant for markets or for export markets. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I wrote the book because I really wanted to understand why governments were ignoring all of these low-cost solutions like you just described, which I saw everywhere as farmer groups and NGOs and others kind of rejected this green revolution approach and said, no, we need crop diversity. We need to rebuild our soils. We need to improve the quality of our seeds, but not replace them with commercial seeds necessarily. I catalog in the book many places around around the world where they're doing remarkable things with that, with very little government support. And you could just imagine if they got the kind of backing that the Green Revolution approach is getting from government budgets. Yeah. And, you know, this makes me think of a, another African country you talk about in the book, uh, which is Malawi. It's always called the, the poster child of the new Green Revolution in Africa that was pushed by the Gates Foundation and others beginning around 2006. And the country did, um, at first, much like the original Green Revolution, succeed in, in increasing yields, mostly in one crop, corn, and mostly through government-subsidized chemical fertilizers. Can you talk about what happened with the, the quote-unquote Malawi miracle? Yeah, I mean, I, I chose that to focus on precisely because of its reputation. And like you said, it worked in the sense that they doubled corn production in a fairly short period of time. But what I saw when I was there seven years into the Malawi miracle is seeing it start to unravel. And it unravels because monocropping corn and putting chemical fertilizer on it is a little bit like putting trout into a trout pond so people can fish in the summer. <laughs> you know, sure, people can come later in the summer and pull some trout out, and farmers can pull some corn out of their ground if it's been doused in chemical fertilizer. But the soil is no more capable of sustaining life than it was before. Right. Um, it's not more fertile. It's actually less fertile. It grows more acidified. And you start to see yields plateau, flatten out. Farmers need more fertilizer to get the same yields. And they weren't getting really good yields to start with. I mean, they had increased, mm -hmm. production increased, but it didn't increase that much. And so 
when you looked closely, food insecurity had not gone down significantly. Rural hunger had not gone down significantly. Rural incomes had not gone up significantly in spite of doubling corn production. Crop diversity had declined. That was a bad thing. Um, that was bad for nutrition for a country that's too dependent on one crop for most of its calories, particularly among the poor. So the most creative responses to that, which I saw plenty of in Malawi, were agroecological, biodiverse farms using composted manure and uh, no chemical fertilizer and rebuilding soils year by year with nice intercropping of legumes and corn and and other crops and dramatically improving the nutritional outcomes because of the diet diversity that came out of their fields. Wow. Yeah, you know, I remember reading the agronomist Roland Bunch's analysis several years ago, uh, giving this very stark warning that fertilizer subsidies are a recipe for famine, um, which sounded counterintuitive. <laughs> I kind of wish that um, I end up saying when I talk about this book that we should probably come up with a different word for the product than fertilizer since <laughs> it doesn't actually create fertility. Mm. What would not you suggest? <laughs> I'm not sure. But, um, every agronomist will recognize that fertilizer alone will do nothing to rebuild the fertility of the soil. You have to do it with a whole variety of other measures, which are much more associated with agroecology. Right. And Compost, manure, intercropping, cover crops, um, leaving residue in the fields. It's very convenient for the fertilizer companies and the seed companies to reduce the agricultural development agenda to the two products they sell. <laughs> that is convenient. Yeah. Um, and it's not an accident. I mean, I think that speaks to the point of uh, why so many farmers organizations and farmers movements like the Global Peasant Farmer Confederation, La Via Campesina, um, talks about some of these corporate quote unquote solutions as false solutions or, you know, they call climate smart agriculture, climate stupid, <laughs> because it's That's really right. um, a marketing campaign led by chemical companies and hybrid and GMO seed companies. No, that's right. I mean, people don't realize that what's entirely compatible with the mainstream conception of climate smart agriculture is a massive field of genetically modified soybeans, you know, thousands of acres being farmed by huge machines um, in monoculture year after year. But because it's using Roundup Ready seeds and they can spray herbicides liberally, to get rid of all weeds, no tillage of the soil is needed. So you can do no-till agriculture, and that's considered climate smart. <laughs> so a massive multi-thousand acre field of monoculture soy doused in fertilizer and chemicals uh, and pesticides is climate smart agriculture in their, in their eyes. Right. Your book is filled with all of these um, very succinct <laughs> little phrases that I kept finding and underlining, you know, five times and circling and putting exclamation marks next to you. Um, and, uh, and one of them from the introduction is um, agribusinesses don't farm. Right. You know, the end of that sentence is that, but they make a lot of money off of agriculture, right? <laughs> but I just, I thought that was such a great quote and something that kind of defies common sense, I think, right? 
Well, I think the vernacular is confusing to people, I think, outside the farming community. I mean, if you go to Iowa, no farmer is confused by whether agribusiness is farming. They're not farming. They're mm -hmm. the people you, you're buying your inputs from. They're the people you're buying your tractors from. They're the people you're selling your crop to. Mm -hmm. They're not farmers. But in the general public, big farmers are equated to agribusiness, and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, agribusinesses are businesses. <laughs> and yeah. as such, the fact that they dominate what we in the United States know as the farm lobby right. is misleading, right? It's confusing to people. Makes it sound like the farm lobby is a bunch of farmers when it's actually a bunch of corporations. Another topic you delve into is trade and specifically the North American Free Trade Agreement or NAFTA. The narrative that we're hearing these days, <laughs> especially from the Trump administration, which is working on passing now this new version of the agreement, uh, is that NAFTA has benefited Mexico and hurt the United States. But you, you tell a very different story in your book. And, um, you know, I also had a great Real Food Reads conversation with Alicia Galvez, the author of another great book, Eating NAFTA, um, about this. But... Can you talk a little bit about your experience on the ground in Mexico and and about who benefits from these agreements and what the fallout has been for farmers? The narrative that uh, Mexico was the big winner from NAFTA is really what drove my research agenda at Tufts since 2000 because mm -hmm. we recognized that just wasn't going to be true and it already was showing itself not to be true and we set out to do the research that could empirically show that Mexico was not winning from NAFTA. Mm. Um, there was just a report that came out um, last week, I think, that showed that in terms of quality of work and job creation, Mexico ranks near the bottom in almost every category in Latin America. Mm. Despite, and, and this is the thing that's so striking about it, despite signing a, a trade agreement with the United States, sharing a 2,000-mile border with the largest consumer market in the world, mm. um, opening up investment with the largest source of private investment in the world. And even then, even with a preferential trade agreement, Mexico couldn't parlay that into anything resembling dynamic economic growth and right. job growth. It's just a complete disaster. Something else you don't really hear talked about in the U.S. right now in the immigration debates is how these sorts of policies, you know, affected or destroyed people's livelihoods on the land and, and forced them to leave their homes in search of income. Uh, no, really. And that, that's more what my focus was in my research. What we documented was just in the take corn, which is the key Mexican staple. Corn imports from the United States increased 400% after NAFTA because mm. tariffs were eliminated and restrictions on imports were eliminated. And those imports came into Mexico at nearly 20% below what it cost to produce the corn in the United States, mm. which is called agricultural dumping. So we're sending massive quantities of dumped corn into Mexico, and Mexican farmers saw the price they could get for their corn go down 66%. Wow. That is an absolutely devastating blow to a still fairly robust rural economy. And the out-migration from rural areas was tremendous after that, that economic hit. 
Um, and it's really reminiscent of, of what we're seeing today coming out of Central America. I, I remind people that NAFTA liberalized a lot of markets. It liberalized the trade in goods. It liberalized the flow of capital. Um, it liberalized the flow of services. It did not liberalize the flow of labor. Right. It did not free the flow of labor. So migrants were criminalized like we've seen and are seeing now. And the cost to Mexican families and, and rural communities has been just devastating. I mean, the other thing that I think people don't quite recognize is is how multinational firms benefit from these agreements. And it shouldn't be a surprise, you know, as soon as I say it when I'm talking about about these issues, everybody nods because you say, well, who's likely to benefit from the opening up of multinational trade flows and investment flows? Well, companies that are positioned to trade and invest multinationally, multinational firms. Indeed, they are the winners from these trade agreements. And I document in the book the astonishing case of Smithfield, the huge pork producer, which not only put a ton of people out of work in Veracruz, Mexico, by exporting its pork and undermining pork producers, by buying up pork operations there, but also by going in um, with recruiters and recruiting some of those same people that they had put out of work to come into the United States illegally and work at the Tar Heel plant in North Carolina. Why? To undermine a unionization drive wow. that African-American workers were leading in that community. Yeah, this was, um, this was Alicia's um, sort of sentiment that she conveyed as well, is that it's really not about which country has won NAFTA, <laughs> but right. rather that it's, you know, poor and working people in both countries or all three countries who have really suffered. Yeah, and I think that's really true. I remind people, though, that Tar Heel plant in North Carolina ended up unionizing. Mm. Um, the United <laughs> Food and Commercial Workers Union adopted a brand new, what at the time was a fairly revolutionary approach to union organizing. They had bilingual organizers going in. They included undocumented workers in their organizing drives. And in 2008, they won a union vote and they have a contract in the largest pork manufacturing plant in the world. Um, it's probably one of the biggest labor victories in the last 20 mm. years. That goes to show that capital's strategies are always changing and evolving, and, and movement strategies need to also be changing and evolving, right? That's right. That's right. Um, you know, I think the labor movement has come a long way in recognizing that demonizing um, undocumented workers does not work to their benefit. It really is uniting all workers that will allow them to, to move their labor agenda forward. Speaking of movements, there's a very different vision from what free trade agreements put forward. Um, that vision is called food sovereignty. And it actually came out of a farmer-led critique of free trade. And like NAFTA, but specifically the World Trade Organization in the early 1990s. So how does the food sovereignty vision differ? Yeah, food sovereignty has really taken hold. Uh, I heard it everywhere I went. It was very encouraging, in fact, to hear so many different farm groups and organizations um, supporting the idea that nations and actually communities um, should have the sovereign right to determine where their food comes from and how it's produced. If that means choosing to grow food even though it's expensive to do so, that should be their right. 
not having to buy food because it's cheaper imported from the United States. Mm. And so that works directly against this idea of free trade, which is about sourcing all goods from their lowest cost producers, comparative advantage. It's a very meaningful concept, even more meaningful in some of the areas that I was working in where the the concept of seed sovereignty, which is a, Mm. a key part of food sovereignty, and that's the right of farmers to freely choose where they get their seeds and the right to save, exchange, and sell seeds among themselves, um, which is directly threatened by some of the Gates Foundation-funded campaigns to, quote-unquote, modernize seed policies in Africa. So uh, it's a real rallying cry for groups like the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa. So I am a big fan, of course, of Francis Morlapay, who you work with at the Small Planet Institute. And she was, you know, one of those pioneers in the 1970s, critiquing the idea that producing more food or rather producing more agricultural commodities using these packages of hybrid seeds and chemicals is going to solve hunger. You mentioned in the example, I believe, of Malawi that, you know, fertilizer subsidies and seed packages were successful in increasing production to some degree, but not in decreasing hunger. Why do you think this myth um, has remained so persistent today? Mm, Yeah, well, it's certainly Frankie LePay will will bemoan the fact that it's nearly 50 years since she wrote Diet for a Small Planet, arguing that hunger is not the product of a lack of food, but a lack of power on the part of hungry people. Mm. She bemoans that people still think that just growing more food commodities is the solution to hunger. I think it, it, it resonates because it has strong corporate backers and because it justifies the kind of agriculture that the colonial powers or the imperial powers have um, in their export markets. So it's very convenient to say that Africa needs our food Mm. that we grow in Iowa, in spite of the fact that almost none of our food that we grow in Iowa goes to places like Southern Africa and feeds the hungry. It feeds ethanol plants. It feeds animal factories. It feeds animal factories in China. At best, you can say it helps drive down the cost of pork to China's middle class. Mm. But you can't say that it feeds the hungry. And growing more of it, and we're overproducing all of those crops right now, and crop prices are so low they're driving farmers into bankruptcy, is just insane. But you still hear that same argument. We don't, we don't feed the world because the developing world is fed by the developing world mainly. Mm-hmm. 70% of the food they eat comes from their own countries. Mm-hmm. So it's just not true that we're the main source of their food. And the majority of that, 70% of the food that they're eating, is grown by small-scale farmers in those countries and in those communities. And the paradox is that a majority of the chronically hungry in the world are in those same smallholder farming communities. So the obvious answer to fight hunger isn't to grow more food commodities in Iowa. It's to help farmers in Malawi grow more of their own food. And 
to do so in a way that actually improves their ability to not only eat today, but eat tomorrow by improving the natural resource base on which their farming is being carried out. And that's the piece of the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa that is just failing abysmally. Um, As you said, in Malawi, it's, you know, you double corn production and you don't see a significant decrease in in rural hunger, something's wrong with that model. In Zambia, it's actually worse. They actually tripled corn production and they have 78% of their rural residents living in extreme poverty. And Mm -hmm. that hasn't moved a percentage point since they started those policies. And it's because all the value of that is being captured by companies selling the goods and the traders capturing the profits from the increased production. Um, It's not going back to the farmers who most need it. The other piece of the number you mentioned, you know, 70% of the food consumed in developing countries is is produced by smallholder farmers, by peasant food producers. Um, But the other piece of that is they're doing it on much less land than the land base dominated by agribusiness. Right. The the overall measure, I think, is that roughly large-scale agriculture produces about 25% of the world's food on 75% of its land, and, wow. and small-scale agriculture produces about 75% of the food on 25% of the land. Since we are going into an election season here in the United States, apparently it's starting already, what should candidates and elected officials understand about food and agriculture? Very good question. I gave, I was in Iowa in in late March and early August and was able to talk about my book there and three or four different talks there, which was really interesting and an interesting time to be there because it's Iowa and the election season starts there first. So it was well underway. And we actually went to a candidate forum that uh, the Iowa Farmers Union and the and Open Markets um, had organized with an explicit agenda of addressing consolidation and excessive corporate power in, in agriculture. So really interesting attempt to kind of set a new narrative for the discussion of, of rural policies. And I think they succeeded in some ways. They're, they're much more interesting platforms out there from Elizabeth Warren, from Bernie Sanders, um, from a couple of the other Democratic primary contenders with much more expansive, detailed, and practical steps to address what's ailing rural Iowa and rural America generally. Mm -hmm. Um, The Green New Deal discussion is actually not mainly focused on agriculture, but it's opened the door to a new focus on agriculture. And there's interesting work being done on uh, what sorts of rural policies can promote sustainable agriculture and not demonize farmers in the process of greening the U.S. economy. Farmers can be a big part of that. It's a very resonant theme in a place like Iowa. They have no choices about what seeds they buy, only one thing being offered. They have no choices about what kind of equipment they buy, the prices they pay, no choices about who to sell to. There's one grain elevator. You pay what they're paying. That's what you can do. And they are very aware of how markets are not working, and so, um, or at least not working for farmers. And so there's a really interesting narrative and debate going on. And I think candidates who go out there 
with a strong message of corporate accountability, um, addressing corporate concentration and excessive monopoly control of markets can really make inroads in rural areas, but but they can also really right an egregious wrong in our agricultural economies. Um, and it's an excellent place to start with rural policy. That's really interesting and inspiring to hear you say this, because I think conventional wisdom says that you you can't go into Iowa and say anything negative about corporate industrial ag. I don't think that's true. I think if you go in demonizing farmers and they and often, you know, elite northern, eastern, bicoastal candidates mm. may not really understand the difference between demonizing farmers and demonizing agribusiness. But if you're if you recognize the difference, if you recognize that farmers are victims of agribusiness, not its allies, and you address the ways in which they're victims, I think you get a much more uh, a much more fair hearing from farmers. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about the moment is that the flooding in the in the Midwest, which is still ongoing, remarkably, two months after I was there, it's still going on, is devastating for a lot of farmers. And you know, they're having to wake up to the fact that climate change is coming for them too. Mm. Um, it was striking to me that I was in Iowa at the same time that a massive cyclone had hit the east coast of Mozambique, uh, causing ma- huge flooding and devastation. And a cyclone, a bomb cyclone, had hit um, the Midwest, causing massive flooding in parts of Iowa and other parts of the Midwest. And farmers are the hardest hit. And I think there's a growing awareness that climate change is coming for all of them and that we better do something about it. Can you think of one specific person, one individual you hope would read your book and what impact would you like it to have on them? I would be thrilled if this became the Real Food Reads book for African leaders. Oh, wow. Because the Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa and that approach is costing them an enormous amount of money. They spend so much money on these input subsidies and they're getting nothing for it. So it's a huge waste of resources. Um, it costs their people in terms of hunger and, and lack of rural development. But they could opt for something else. You know, even the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, has a scaling up agroecology program, and they're actively piloting new agroecology programs in three countries, Senegal, India, and Mexico. And I've seen what they're doing in Mexico, and it's for real. It is mm-hmm. not business as usual. So there are alternatives to the Green Revolution approach. And if African leaders would step back, disentangle themselves from the control exercised over them by donor agencies and the Gates Foundation and agribusiness and just say, hey, what's a better way to spend our money? I think you could see a really significant change in rural policies in in Africa. And that's where I'd most like to see the change happen because it's where it's most needed. Battle for the future of the food is the most urgent in Africa. Hunger's the most severe. The land's the most degraded. There's the largest share of the population still in agriculture, and they haven't been conquered by industrial agriculture yet. So there's something to defend and something Mm -hmm. to build on. Um, I think there's a lot of potential there that could be tapped pretty quickly. 
I guess it's also incumbent on us to get the right people elected and to educate them, to get your book <laughs> into their hands um, and then continue pressuring them to enact a different kind of food and rural development policy. And to make sure that any Green New Deal that Democratic candidates are supporting does not involve exporting our industrial agriculture system to other countries. Mm -hmm. That should be part of a Green New Deal is that we stop doing that. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. You can join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review.